God bless you. We're about to learn. We're about to learn Parashat Mitzorah. Now, I will tell you that the Sephardim, the Syrians especially, they don't like to call the Parasha Mitzorah, even though that's the name of it. Mitzorah means the Parasha of leprosy, and it's a, it's a negative name. So they called the Parasha Parasha Tahor, Parasha of purity, because actually the theme of the Parasha talks about how the Mitzorah becomes pure. Now let's review. Last week we learned all the different forms of leprosy, of spiritual leprosy. We talked about on the body, we talked about on the hair, on the head, and we talked about on the walls, we talked about on the garments. So all these are different types of tzara'at, but now we need to talk about how the mitzorah goes through a purity process. So the Torah begins, Adonai el Moshe Lemo. Zot tihiyeh Torah mitzorah biyom tahorato. So this shall be the law of the mitzorah on the day of his purification. So from the word yom, the Gemara learns that the purification process happens only during the day and not during the night. Biyom tahorato velo belayla. So how does it start? So the Kohen has to go out to the Mitzurah. Now we learned last week, the Mitzurah is sent out from all the camps, which means there's three camps in Israel and he is sent out outside the furthest one. So the Kohen's got to meet him. The Kohen goes all the way to the border and the Kohen uh, meets him at the end of the third camp. And uh, now he has to tell him how he purifies himself. Well, first he has to check him. So the pastor says, Behold, he looks at him and he sees that the affliction has been healed from the Mitzorah. So the Kohen commands, so let's start the first thing. The first thing is you have to take two birds. Now the birds, the Torah says, have to be alive. Well, obviously they have to be alive. The Torah is going to tell us in a minute that you have to slaughter the birds. So if you're slaughtering the birds, it goes without saying that they're alive. So why does it have to say that they're alive? So the Rashi comes along and tells us that this comes to exclude birds that won't be able to live, which means they're sick or they have a blemish that they won't be able to live. Anytime you have an animal or a bird that's alive but will not be able to live, they call that a terefa. Yeah, we have the word taref. Taref means that although the animal's alive or the bird's alive, it has an internal blemish that will not allow the bird or animal to live. So when it says you take two birds, Hayot. Number one, they have to be animals that will live. No blemishes. Tehorot. Tehorot means they have to be kosher, kosher birds as opposed to impure birds. 
Now, why do you think you need to bring birds in the first place? Here the Torah is telling you, you must bring birds, not animals. So that she comes along and says, is because the main reason why a person gets, gets sara'at is because they speak lashonara. And lashonara is, we call that pitput. Pitput means his mouth is, is moving. The, the flickering of the, of the tongue. So therefore, he brings birds. And what do birds do all day long? They chirp. But therefore, because he was chirping like a bird, so therefore, we bring birds and we slaughter the bird in order to say, stop chirping. Stop speaking. Now we'll see why two birds. Stay tuned for that. Now, besides the birds, the pasuk says you bring etz eres, uh, a piece of cedar wood. Now, we know about the cedar tree. It's a very tall, proud tree. So the Torah tells us also another reason why a person gets sarat, <laughs> person gets sarat because of haughtiness. Haughtiness, ga'ava. So therefore, because he acted like a cedar, he acted in a, you know, in a, in a very uh, arrogant way. So therefore, the cedar that's brought in this process reminds us of the attitude of the Mitzvah. So again, we're just giving the equipment. So far, you got two birds, you got a piece of wood from the cedar tree. What else? Ushni tolat. Ushni tolat is a piece of red string. Not the red string you put around your wrist, but the red string uh, that's called crimson. And we'll see what you do with that. And Ezov. Ezov is a hyssop. Ezov is like the, uh, the za'ata. So from that tree is called Ezov. So they take a hyssop. It's like a herb. Now, why do you take an herb? The herb is a very low item. It grows low on the ground, very soft. Because since the the sin of the Mitzvah is arrogance. He acted like an arrogant cedar tree. So therefore, his, um, his cure is going to be, let him lower himself from his arrogance like a, like a hyssop. So they call that uh, Ezov. And the, the string is called Tola'at. Now literally, Tola'at is a worm. It's because... Just like a worm is low, so too he has to humble himself like a worm. So again, ushni tolat, so say a tongue of crimson uh, wool and a hyssop. Okay, so now we got the ingredients. Let's review. Two birds, piece of etz piece of uh, cedar, a uh, crimson string, which is red, and a ezov a hyssop. Now we got to find out what you do with all this stuff. So one of the birds, a slaughter. Now when you slaughter the bird, you're going to have the blood. 
Now you got to catch the blood. <clears throat> Where do you put the blood? So it says, El Kili Heres, into an earthenware vessel, Al Mayim Hayim. That means the earthenware vessel was filled already with spring water. Now she says, a small amount of spring water, an amount that's called a Revi'it. Revi'it is like three ounces. And then you want to drain the blood from the bird into the cup as well. So now you have in the cup water, and now you have the blood of the bird that's mixed in there. Now, what are they going to do with this mixture of the blood and the water? So the Torah is going to tell us. Now you take the live bird. So you take the cedar wood, you take the hyssop, you put them together, and you tie it with the crimson, with the red string. So now basically you have all these items into one into one item. You tie them together. So again, you have the tree, the hyssop are all tied together with the crimson, and you take the live bird separately. And what do we do with these items? You're going to dip them. And you dip the live bird into the um, into the blood of the of the slaughtered one. Okay, so now you got this item dipped in blood, uh, and you have the bird dipped in blood. It's unbelievable this purification process will be. So the, what does the Torah then say to do? have to sprinkle the blood towards the Mitzorah uh, seven times. Okay, so that's the uh, that's the uh, the process. He gets sprinkled from the blood seven times, and that purifies him. And then the shilach said you send the live bird to go free. <clears throat> so what would be the symbolism? Why one bird you slaughter and one bird you send free? What would be the logic of that? Who could give a logic why one bird is slaughtered and one bird is set free? Okay, silence for once. The answer is that because the purpose of the Mitzorah, we're giving him a kapara. What was the sin that the Mitzorah did? He speaks, Now, we're not, so therefore we take a bird who chirps and we slaughter him. Basically, that's telling the Mitzorah, stop chirping, stop talking. You're talking too much Lashonara. So just like a dead bird, doesn't chirp anymore. We're telling the Mitzorah, you really have to stop talking Lashonara. But we don't want the Mitzorah to stop talking at all. Just don't talk Lashonara. Talk the Vre Torah, talk words of Chesed, talk words of encouragement, talk positive words. So that's why we send the live bird away, which means we want him to still chirp. It's just that we want him to cut out his malicious talk and only talk positive talk. 
So therefore, one bird is slaughtered, that's connected to the and the other bird is sent away alive, meaning to continue to uh, make it make its uh, make its noise. Now, the pasuk then says that v'tahed he becomes pure. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped. I skipped. V'kibesa v'tahed begadav. He has to put his clothes in the mikveh. Now v'gilach et kol se'aro. Part of the process of the mitzvah is got to shave all his hair. I mean, all his, his, you know, his hair on his body. It's called Sa'ad also, his head, and there's other areas where the hair gathers. So he's totally bald. V'rahatz, today that, that becomes a style. You see the kids walking around, everybody's a Mitzorah today. They, they go to the haircut, they, and they, do the, they buzz their hair up. In the older days, if you looked like that, you were a Mitzorah. Today, you consider it normal. It's a different uh, topic. And then he washes his, goes to the mikveh, and only after he goes to the mikveh, he comes back into the camp. But he must remain outside of his tent for seven days. That means when we say outside of his tent, that means he's not allowed to be with his wife for seven days. Tent is the white. So even though he's in the process, it's a seven-day process for him to become pure. So therefore, he can come back into the camp, but he can't be with his wife. That's uh, because he's Tamir. Now, what happens on the seventh day? So now, he has to again shave his hair, uh, whatever's left. Etroshov, Etzekano, his head, his beard, Gavot Enav, his, uh, his eyebrows. It called Se'aroi Galaya. Any area that hair grows on his body and collects in a significant manner, he's got to cut. And then what does he do? Vichibes Begadav, he washes his clothes again and he goes to the mikveh. It's unbelievable the process here. It's an unbelievable process. This is all because he spoke Lashonara. So a guy, trust me, the guy's gonna think twice. The guy's gonna think twice next time before he speaks Lashonara, because they're making him go through this whole process. Now that's on the seventh day. Now, on the seventh day, now on the eighth day, they've got to do something. It's unbelievable. So he did the two birds, they sprinkled them. And then He's got to wait seven days. He can't be with his wife. And then he's got to shave himself like a, like a pumpkin. He's got no, uh, no, no hair all over his body. And then what does it say? On the eighth day, he has to take two unblemished lambs and then a female lamb. That's for a uh, sin offering, a hatat. Three esronim, uh, it's a measure of uh, flour in order for the flour offering. One measure per each korban, because he brings three sacrifices. So one efa, or one it's one esaron per, per korban, a flour, mixed in oil. And then besides that, he brings an additional log 
of oil. A log is about, I don't know, 12, 15 ounces of oil. Now, what are you bringing this separate oil for besides the oil that's mixed in the meal offering? As she says, because they sprinkle towards him again seven times. Now, they don't have to sprinkle it on him, but they sprinkle it towards the Holy of Holies. So they're sprinkling blood on him. That is sprinkling oil towards the Holy of Holies. The Kohen takes the first of the um, of the lambs. It's for it as a guilt offering. And he brings it with the the log hashamin. Now, as she says over here, that the Mitzorah, he's not allowed to walk into the Beit HaMikdash at this point. Until he brings his korban, he cannot walk into the temple. But he has to be there for the korban. So there was a certain gate, it was called the Nikanor gate. Sha'ar Nikanor. That's where the Mitzorah used to stand. They were allowed to stand there. It gives them a view of what's going on inside, but they're not technically in a place that is forbidden. So again, the Mitzorah is standing at Sha'ar Nikanor, but not in the actual courtyard, because again, until he brings his sacrifices, he's not allowed to be in the courtyard. And then he brings, uh, the Kohen brings the Korban as an Asham, and the Torah says, otam. part of the Korban is after have to wave it. Now, the Torah says, they wave it when it's still alive. So that's... Uh, they take the animal when it's alive and they have to wait. That's another another process. Okay, so that's the um, that's the beginning of the Qurban uh, of the Mitzvah. So again, let's just review. I spoke Lashon Allah. He was arrogant. And some other Averot. He got the skin discoloration. <clears throat> the Kohen rend renders him Tameh after an examination. Now he's got to leave the camp. He's got to go into solitary confinement outside the, uh, you know, outside the Mahane Israel. They put him in a uh, in a uh, uh, COVID hotel somewhere. And now, after the Kohen comes to examine him and he sees that he's pure, now they start the process. Two birds slaughter the birds in the water uh, with a hyssop and with a crimson and with a, it's it is and they dip it. And they sprinkle the live bird and the other items into the blood. Then they sprinkle them seven times, take a haircut, and then he comes back into the camp, but he can't be with his wife. And then on the seventh day, again, he's got to cut all his hair. And then on the eighth day, that's when he has to bring these sacrifices, although he cannot enter the courtyard of the temple yet. So he stands at the gate called the Kanor Gate, and the Korbanot are brought on his behalf, uh, there is oil also that is brought that is going to be sprinkled towards the Kodesh uh, of the of the Beta Megdash. So that's that's stage number one. Stay tuned, Abotai, for tomorrow night. Rabbi, he goes to the Mikveh twice, once before and once after the seven days? Yes, good observation. That's correct. He goes in the beginning of the process and at the end of the process. Very well. All right, we should have a shirma for Haya Sarah, but some ha, and not a ha, a toshar hole. We're learning Parashat Mesora, as I said, Parashat Tahor.
Last night's session, we learned about how the Mitzorah purifies himself, the process. And we learned about the different uh, the different uh, equipment that he needs. So besides the sacrifices, we said there's some oil, there's a hyssop, there's a, uh, a cedar wood, there's a crimson string, birds, and they dip it into their blood, they sprinkle it. Now the Pasuk, we begin in chapter uh, 14, and we're going to read Pasuk 13. So they slaughter the, uh, one of the animals. And she says they slaughter it on the northern side of the uh, altar. And the Korban Ola also, that's a different type of Korban. The will take midam ha'asham. Now this is very, very interesting. The process he takes from the blood of the korban. <coughs> he places it on the ear, the right ear of the mitzora. Which part of the ear? The part that the Torah refers as tenuch. And she says tenuch is what we would refer to as the cartilage or the tendon. So right in the middle of the ear over here, he takes the blood of the korban and he sprinkles it in his ear. And on his right thumb, bohen is the thumb, gets sprinkled over there as well. And he also gets sprinkled on his right big toe. So again, right ear, the college, right thumb, and right toe. Sprinkled from the blood of the sacrifice. I have to remind you, as I said last night, the Mitzorah is not allowed to stand in the Bet HaMikdash because he's still impure. So remember, he stood at a gate. The gate was called the Gate of Nikanor. And that was the border. That's as close as he can get. So the Kohen stands in the temple, in the courtyard, and he's sprinkling him while he's standing outside. Now, now the Kohen takes from the oil, and the Kohen takes the oil, and he pours it upon the Kohen's left palm. So one Kohen takes the oil, and he pours it in the left palm, of the uh, of the other Kohen, or of, of his of his palm, he just pours the oil into his left palm. And he dips his finger into the oil. And he sprinkles the oil seven times in front of the holy of holies. Now, what do you do with the rest of the oil? Because you have a whole thing of oil, like uh, three ounces, actually a log. Log is more like 12 ounces. So a lot of oil in his hand. So after he finishes sprinkling, what does he do with the leftover? So it says, with the leftover oil that's in his palm, he places it on the right ear of the Smitsurah, and on his right thumb. Where the blood is already. 
So first you have blood, and then you have the oil. Now what do you do with the leftover oil? Even after that, Ashir al so they place it on the head. So now they, the Kohen takes his hand and just smears it on the on the Mitzorah's head. And now he is getting his kapara. Now, can anybody explain this process? I definitely can't. This is a very, very strange process. Sprinkling blood on the cartilage of an ear, sprinkling blood on a thumb, sprinkling blood on a big toe, and then if that's not enough, sprinkling oil in the same spot, and then taking the leftover oil and smearing it on the guy's head. All right, this is we're gonna have to chalk it up to uh, an inexplicable ceremony that we really don't understand the rationale to it, but the Torah is telling us. That's the way you cure yourself from uh, Sarah. You know, it's a uh, secret. Uh, the secret belongs to God. What should I tell you? And then the Quran brings the Korban, the sin offering. Then he brings the, the sacrifice called the So that's talking about a normal process of a uh, now the Torah says, Now let's say the Mitzvah is poor. <clears throat> no, rather, uh, if he's poor, let's say, and he can't afford all these sacrifices, he will take a, a sheep. Uh, and then he could just take some flour offering. And instead of taking animals, he could take birds. Whatever he can afford. He brings them on the eighth day of his purification to the Kohen. Again, the Kohen will take the, the animal. The asham, the kibbutz, which is the sheep, the dog asham, and the oil. Benifotabi has to wave it to the front of the Hashem, then he slaughters it. And then again, he takes the blood and he puts it on the cartilage of his ear, right ear, and also the big thumb and the big toe of his right foot. And then he takes the oil and he puts it again in his left hand. And then again, he sprinkles with his right hand onto the uh, right. Uh, seven times, I'm sorry, he sprinkles seven times first in front of the Kodesh, and then he takes the oil and he puts it on the ear, or the cartilage, on top of the blood, and then on the big toe, and then on the big, uh, the big, 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 uh, the thumb and the big toe. Same exact process. And the leftover oil, what does he do with it? He places it on the head of the Mitzorah, rubs him, gives him uh, some, uh, some oil on his head, See, some people in Shul do that even they don't have Mitzorah, they have oil in their head. But that's uh, that's another story. Then he takes the birds. Whatever he can afford. And he brings one as a Korban Hatat, as a sin offering, and one as an Ola. So basically he's bringing three Korban Hatat, 
Ola and Asham. And the Kohen will atone for him. And the Torah then concludes, Zot Torah, this is the law, Asher Bo Nega Sarat, Asher Lot Tasig Yado Betahorato. So that's the, the process uh, that he goes through in order to reach his, uh, his purity. Okay, I know it's uh, a few minutes early, but I'm, uh, I'm a little cold tonight, so I'm going to retire and drop early because I'm not feeling so well. Nonetheless, we do this for the Fuash of Hayasara Bat Simha, Meshem Refuash Even one Pasuk to learn is worth it, but we learn Baruch Hashem a few. And basically, what we did tonight is the purification process of the sprinkling on the thumb, the big thumb, and the ear of the oil and of the blood. Blood, actually, first. And we said the same thing applies to the poor man. The poor man just gets to bring birds instead of animals. That's what we came here to do. We're in Parashat Metzorah. We're up to chapter 14. And we're up to Pesukim. We start from Pesuk Lamedim 33. So when you're going to come to the land of Canaan, so the land of Canaan is a land that God gives us uh, we take possession of it. So the Pasuk comes along and says that God is going to uh, so it says that God is going to uh, place the Sara'at in their homes. That as she says over here, that actually this is good news. Now, how could Sara'at on the walls of a person's house be good news? So as she says something unbelievable over here. He says that when the Jews came into Eretz Israel, before they came in, the goyim hid all their treasures in the walls, hoping that they'll eventually come back one day and we, uh, you know, repossess their money. So they made like uh, holes in the wall. And they stuck the money in it and they sealed it up. So what happened was that when the Jews finally came into Eretz Yisrael, how were they going to find the money? So Hashem brought leprosy on the wall. And the law is that when the Kohen renders the wall Tameh, you got to knock the wall down. When they knocked the wall down, they ended up seeing all the treasures. So actually, this is a, a great lesson that we learned. If you look at the word uh, for a, um, a blemish or affliction, the word is nega. Nega means affliction. But if you write the word nega backwards, it spells the word onig. Onig means something pleasurable. That means God never brings something that's not good. Everything that God does is good. Although it looks to us like a nega, but if we're able to see the silver lining, in the onig, there's a nega. So here, if somebody would see a, uh, you know, a leprosy on the wall, now the Kohen comes, now the demolition guys come and they have to knock the wall down. And the, the man and the lady are probably crying and saying, oh, there goes our house. 
they destroyed our house. What a terrible thing. No way we're going to live. And all of a sudden, as they're demolishing it, they find hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now they can build a bigger house and a beautiful house. They became instantly wealthy. So from the Nega, there's actually Onig. We see this, we see this concept uh, many times. And that's why, if you look at the uh, next Pasuk, it says, Uba Asher lo habayit. And the, uh, the one that the house belongs to, Kohen. He tells the Kohen, Kenega Eli Babayit. Now, what does it mean over here? Kanega. Kanega means like an affliction. And the explanation is because only the Kohen is able to make a definitive ruling if it's a nega or not. Even the biggest Tamid Hakam has no right to uh, conclusively determine if it's a nega or not. That she says, Let's say Tamid Hakam, he studied all the laws of Negaim and he knows definitely the signs. He cannot render a judgment. He cannot say anything definitively to say nega did Ali. At best he can say kan nega. Why? Because only the Kohen is able to make the, the definitive ruling. But there's a Musan in this as well that there's no such thing as a nega. It's always kan nega. Kan nega means it's like a nega, which means it might look like an affliction. It might look like something that's a hardship or a, or a difficulty. But it's only a kenega, because ultimately, like we said, the nega is onig. And the Mikubalim say that there are many words like that. If you take the word um, tzara, tzara means a, a worry or a trouble. And if you boggle the letters around, tzara also spells retzeh. Retzeh means to be wanted, to be accepted. Um, we have also, for example, uh, in Hebrew, Zerabi uh, Nachman from Breslov said this. He said that the word for when a person has obstacles in his life. Sometimes a person is trying to do something and there's always obstacles in his way. There's always something blocking him. There's always a, a stumbling block. They call those mini'ot. Mini'ot are things that are you know, in his way. He goes, takes a step forward, two steps back. There's always something, you know, uh, there's impediments. Those are called mini'ot. However, the Rabbi Nachman from Breslov said, if you take the word miniot, it's the same letters as ne'imut. Ne'imut means pleasantness. Because in every, in every trial, in every tribulation, in every test, in every nisayon, the nisayon is, is, is ultimately for the person's benefit. And therefore, when he looks back, he sees that all the things that he went through, all the miniot, actually leads him to ne'imut. That's a, a great lesson that we learn from Tzara'at Abayit. That although it looks like a nega, it's not a nega. It's only ken nega. That's only to the to the to, to the eye of the of the person that's going through it. Looks like a nega, but ultimately it's never a nega. It's a it's a always like, but never it. And the Torah says besiva kohen. So the kohen makes a, a ruling. Ufinu etabayit. So they have to clear out the house. Because once the Kohen renders the Nega Tameh, everything in the house is going to be Tameh. So they clear out the house first before the Kohen makes his ruling. So it's really dependent on the Kohen's declaration. 
Now, there's a lesson on that also. Why is it dependent on the Kohen's declaration? Which is, until the Kohen says, Tameh, the nega, is not, uh, is not toxic at all. Once the Kohen says, Tameh, all of a sudden, everything, uh, everything in the house becomes Tameh. Why is it dependent on the Kohen's word? And the Mepharshim explained because, again, why does Sara'at come on a person or on his wall or on his clothes? Because he speaks Lashonara. And when you tell the person, you know, you're speaking Lashonara, what does he say? Hakimalash, he says, ah, the words mean nothing. Words are cheap. What's the difference? And now we're trying to teach about powerful words. Are. All the Kohen has to do is say one word. He says the word Tameh, and all of a sudden, the guy's whole... Uh, his whole house becomes Tamir, just on one word of the Kohen. So the the the, the Musad of the Kohen rendering it through a declaration is in order to teach the Ba'ala Shonara of Musad. But there is power in your words. That words are not just, uh, you know, hot air. Words do something. There's power. As a matter of fact, in Hebrew, the word in Hebrew that we use for, um, for a word is Dibur. Dibur actually comes from the root word davar. Davar is an object. That means words are an object. They're not just air. They create something. As I remind you that God used words to create the world. So the words definitely have power. If you ever went to a, a magic show, before the magician takes the rabbit out of the hat, what does he say? Abracadabra. Now, where did they get this abracadabra from? Abra is the Hebrew word. Abra. Abra means I will create. Kadabra means kedabera, as I speak. That just like God created through speech, abra kedabera. So therefore, the magician says abracadabra as if ki'ilu. He thinks he's God, that through his words, he's going to pull a rabbit out of the hat. But the point is, words definitely have power. So anyway, the Kohen comes into the house and he tells. Um, and again, she says that she calls man that for all the while she in Kohen is kaklo that the Kohen does not get involved and render a decision. Enchan Torah Tumah. There's no uh, there's no impurity here. Now the reason why they tell him to take out all the things uh, out of the house. So you see over here that the Torah has mercy on a person's money. Because if everything in the house is going to become tamer, a lot of things are, you cannot purify them. Not every vessel can you purify after it becomes tamer. For example, an earthenware vessel, you cannot purify. You got to break it. So therefore, if let's say the guy had a whole cupboard of uh, china or, uh, you know, uh, uh, earthenware, he would lose it. So the Torah says, before we render it tamer, Take everything out of the house, just in case. Now, you see over here that the Torah is worried even about earthenware, which is cheap. Again, gold and silver, as I said, you won't lose the vessel. You just have to put it in the mikveh. So that she says, Torah. What was the Torah worried about? That he told him to take his vessels out. If you were worried about uh, different types of... Uh, uh, metal vessels, yet be lame. You can dip them in the mikveh. And if it's regarding, let's say, food, you can eat them. If he's tamer, 
So he can eat the food when he's tamed. So the food you're not going to lose also. Alohasa Torah ela al kliheres she'en laim tarah bebekveh. The only item that does not have purification in the mikveh is kliheres. Now there's a. The Torah then says that the nega the kohen sees the nega v'nei nega mekirot abayit. The nega is on the on the walls of the house. Sheka arurot. Okay, there's a difficult word now. Yerak lakot. Oh, adam damot. Three words. Sheka arurot means it's depressed. It's indented into the wall. Yerak lakot means uh, it looks uh, green. Like a deep, yeah. Right? Adam damot is deep red. Umarehen shafal benakir. And it looks like it's, uh, yeah, it's the, right. It's in the wall. Right. It looks the way it, the, the, the the optical of it looks like it's um, it's 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 deeper than the the wall itself. It's like it's it's indented in the wall. The attack So the grand goes outside of the house. And what does he do? So he closes off the house for seven days. It's like the buildings department. He closes it down for seven days. The Kohen comes back on the seventh day. All of a sudden, it's starting to spread. Remember we learned last week that one of the signs of Nega is spreading. And now all of a sudden, he notices from one week to the next, it started to spread on the wall. Now already, the Kohen commands, they must, Remove like a the mold. You know, yeah, it's not a mold that uh, a physical item, but yes, you have to remove the, the stones now. Plaster and stone. And... You take apart the whole house. Right. Which means you have to take all these stones over here and you have to put them outside the city because they are tamir. The etabai, and regarding the house, so you have to uh, scrape it from within. So basically, you're cleaning out the uh, the inside of the house as well. And the house shall be scraped from within, all around. And you take the dirt outside the camp. Now you got to build. So you take new stones, and you bring them instead of the old stones, and you take new dirt, and you will now um, cement the house and put mortar uh, on the house as well. Now this poor guy, let's say after they rebuild the house, the nega comes back. After they took the stones out, and after they scraped all the edges of the of the plaster on the inside, and after they finished uh, putting new plaster, and behold, it uh, it spread again. Now what do they do? I have a lot of that. She's over there, which will be tomorrow night. But it says over there, it is considered uh, which is a curse 
ונתת את הבית, את הבנה, ואת עצה, ואת כל עפר הבית, now you got to demolish the whole house. That's it, the guys, uh, the guys really out of business. When all of our bikes will see in Mosul Air, you take all the materials outside the city of Makom Tameh, Vehaba el Abayit, call your base, Giro Toyit Madaan. And anybody that enters the house, when the house is Tameh, will also become Tameh. And that's the, the basic story. Now, if you remind me tomorrow night, and um, We're learning this for Haya, Sada, Bat Simcha. Now, I want to... Also, Rav Halerstein, also, please. Now, it's Perek Tedvav. So last night we learned about Sara'at that manifests itself in the house. And we learned that it was a blessing in disguise, that we said that ultimately there was treasures hidden behind the walls, and... That brought Bnei Israel a lot of wealth. So something that looked like a nega was actually an oneg. There was a silver lining. That's what we learned last night. We learned about how they have to knock the walls down, build the house again, and so on and so forth. <coughs> Tonight we start in chapter 15 by the Ber Adwan Moshe v'Aron Lemor. The Beru el Bnei Israel v'Amarta alehem. Speak to the people. Ish ish. Now there's a certain type of tum'ah, contamination. The contamination is called zav. Now zav is a certain emission that comes out of the body. It comes out of the, the man, and it can come out of the lady. Man is zav, and a lady is called... Zaba. And it is a, a serious, serious type of Tum'ah. The Torah says, Zovo Tameh. Which means even if it's a drop of this uh, emission, it has the ability to be metameh. And the Torah comes along and tells us, Tum'ato Bezovo. So that tells us some of the the qualities of this Zav. This discharge over here, which makes someone a Zav. Um, all right, it's, I guess it's important to get a an introduction. I guess everybody's over 18 over here, so we can talk, uh, you know, in the Torah language. There's different emissions that obviously come out of the body that can render a person Tameh. This is not to be confused with another type of Tum'ah that is the seed, forgive me, that can make a person tameh. We're not talking about that. This is zav. It's a different type of discharge. And even if he has a, uh, a single discharge, so he's also tameh. But on a light level, if he has two, then already he becomes an official zav, and now they throw the book at him. He has full contamination, which we'll see exactly what happens. Now, sometimes the man will see three Zav discharges, and uh, he is going to have to actually uh, be Tamer, and he's going to have to bring sacrifices uh, as well. Now, the level of contamination of this person that has this discharge is called Av HaTum'ah. Av HaTum'ah is primary Tum'ah. Uh, whatever he touches, 
whatever he carries is going to be tamer. Uh, if he sits on his clothes, all these things are going to be tamer as well. The Torah says, that means uh, when this comes out of his body, even if it comes out once, or I should say twice, so then already it's going to make him tamer, and therefore wherever he sits, wherever he lies, any chair that he sits on, anything that he touches, that teaches us that she says, Because which is basically whatever he touches is going to be Tamer and whatever he sits on is going to be Tamer as well. In the olden days, you had to be careful when you invited somebody to your house. He sits on your couch. If he's a Zab, there goes your couch. The couch is Tamer. Or he sits on your chair. It's going to be Tamer. So the Pasuk is coming to tell us that the Mishkab, anything that he lies on, that's very stringent. The Zav, again, as I told you, is an Avatum'ah. The Avatum'ah is a strong Tum'ah that's able to be contaminating people. It touches a person. Um, and therefore, obviously, he has to go through his purification process. If anybody touches the bed that he sat on, he has to put his clothes in the mikveh. And then he's tamer till the evening. But if you sit on the same chair that Azab sat, you also have to wash your clothes and mikveh, and go to the mikveh, and you tamer till the evening. If you touch the Zab, he has to wash his clothes, and goes to the mikveh, Let's say you're talking to a Zav and he spits on you. You ever talk to people? Sometimes they spit on you when they're talking. So now, okay, so that's not the most, uh, uh, what should I say, uh, you know, ethical item. But over here, when the Zav is speaking and some of his saliva goes on the person, the Zav of the, the rock of the Zav also has the ability to be metameh. It touched him. It said he's tamer. He has to wash his clothes in the mikveh. But a chutz b'mayim, he has to also go to the mikveh. But tamer adar. We call a mirkav. Asher yirkav ala bazav yitma. That's anything that he rides on. For example, let's say a saddle of a donkey. The saddle he rides on it. That's going to be tamer as well. To get to a Zav, you had a punishment to become a Zav? Like, I don't get it. Oh, like, so the, 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 the Torah tells us that uh, he was not uh, careful either, let's say, uh, with certain Averot. As I yes. say, sinned or something. 
to see the uh, to, to see the zav. It comes because he has uh, he has something uh, something wrong. It's not only a physical a physical item. Now, regarding a earthenware vessel that the Zab touches, the only way to kosher an earthenware vessel, we learned, you got to break it. Earthenware vessels, there's no way to, to, to purify them, and therefore, the only way you do it is you should throw it away. But if it's a wooden vessel, you can clean it. You put it in the mikveh. Now, how does the zav become pure from his zav tumah? The zav yamim. He counts seven days, like a lady in the nidash. He counts seven days, so he needs to count seven days, and then on the seventh day he goes to the mikveh, and he's pure. On the eighth day, the Torah says he brings korbanot to birds. And he goes in front of the uh, Kohen, and the Kohen brings him as a hatat and an ola. And <coughs> that brings him to, uh, to tahara. Now, when the victim is healed, he offers a sin offering to atone for the sin that caused the malady to be brought upon. So you're right when you say that Zav comes because he did a sin. That's why when he brings the Korban, one of the Korbanot is Korban hatat. So obviously he made sin. So then he must, um, he must, uh, you know, atone for whatever the, uh, for whatever the reason, just like we said, a mitzvah, mitzvah doesn't come for nothing. It comes because he did something. The zab is in the same, is in the same category. Okay, so we learned something new tonight. We learned about tumad zab, something that most people are not aware of. Just to review, it's an emission that comes out of his body. He's not called the zab until at least the discharge happens twice, and the Tum'ah of the Zab is called Avat Tum'ah, and it's very strict, whatever he sits on also becomes Avat Tum'ah, whatever he lies on also becomes Avat Tum'ah, and uh, anybody that touches him becomes Tameh, anybody that comes in contact with his fluids that come out of his body is going to be uh, Tameh as well, and uh, the only way for him to become pure he has to count seven days, and then he brings a korban. Of course, everything is done with the mikveh as well. Okay, that's today's subject. We're learning uh, for all the holim that everybody has uh, has in mind. Tonight we're up to, we're up to Rabbi. Uh, yes, mentioned, yes, you mentioned going over some Rashi, and oh, I think yeah, it was yeah, forty-four yeah, yeah. is the number. Well, yeah, unbelievable. How'd you remember that? Okay, maybe well, we could do that. That'll be a nice digression from what instead of talking about what the Rasha says here. So let's go back then. Maybe we can learn that that sheet together. So that was, that'll be a big zikhut. If we can make sense of this, Rashi. Let's see if we can go slow and learn it properly. That's going back to chapter 14. And it's talking about the tzara'at that afflicts the house. 
So we said that it's on the walls and it's either uh, depressed and it's uh, a deep green color or a deep red color. And it says that uh, the Kohen comes out of the house and he puts the house in, uh, you know, he closes off the house for seven days. Then it says he comes back on the seventh day and it says in the Pasuk, the Nega spread. We always learned that spreading is a sign of Tum'ah. He told them they'd have to remove the stones where the Nega is. They'd have to take the stones and put them outside of the camp in a place that's Tamer. And the uh, the house have to scrape it from the inside. You know, basically, they do a job on the house over there, and then they take new stones and they replace it. Very nice. And then it says in pasuk mevgima, if the nega actually comes back and it flourishes or erupts in the house, after already they remove the stones, so that came back. And after they replanted the house, Kohen, and the Kohen will come back. This is the part we have to read now. So when the Kohen comes back and he sees that the affliction has spread in the house. So it sounds like from the Pasuk here that there was Sarat in the house. The Kohen closed it off for seven days. After seven days, it spread. He renders it tamer. They have to take the stones out. They re-stone the house. They re-plaster the house. And now it says it comes back. And when it comes back, it says that it has to spread. Because the pasuk says, Now what is that spreading? So that she has a long talk. Let's go through that. The imyashuvadega if the nega comes back, so that's the pasuk says, kohen, pasa, that the affliction spread, yachon, yachon means, I would have thought, lo pasa. But it sounds like that when the affliction comes back, it's only tameh after it's spread. I mean, after all, the pasuk says, so it sounds like even when it comes back, it's only Tamer after it's spread. So that she says, no. It talks about this Salaat that comes back by the houses. And it says, And we learned about Salaat returning to garments. Just like above, that when the when it comes back by the garment, it's tame immediately, even if it doesn't spread. So therefore, afkan So to over here, when the sarat comes back to the house, since it's on the return, it's tame immediately. Now, this is a big hadush because the pasuk says, pasa and as she's saying, doesn't have to spread. So now we're going to have to learn the pasuk here because the pasuk is telling us something, and that she's telling us it's not so. 
So Rashi says, Imken so what is the coming to tell me? If indeed you don't need it to spread on the return, so why does it say it? It's an amazing thing here. You can't learn Parasha without Rashi. Rashi says, this Pasuk over here is out of context. And the place of this Pasuk doesn't belong here. Wow. Ela, where does it belong? Vinitats et abayit. The pasuk should have said, Vinitats et abayit. That when he takes the house down, he demolishes the house. Hayalo lechtov. It should have said, Achar ve'im yashuv anega. Which is the Torah should have written like this. And if the nega comes back, Vinitats et abayit. Then the Kohen will command to take down the house. If you look at Pasuk Memheh, it says, So the Pasuk should be read. If it comes back immediately, even if it doesn't spread, immediately you got to take down the house. So, therefore, what is this Pasuk that I'm talking about? What is this Pasuk coming to tell you? This is coming to tell me about an affliction that stands unchanged. Uh, what happens if, let's say, the Kohen comes back after the first week? After his week, he closed off the house and he comes back and the nega is still the same. So he came after the second week. And now it's spread after the second week. We don't know, the Torah didn't teach us what happens if the nega remains after the first week. All the Torah told us was when the grain comes back after the first week, if it spreads, it's Tameh. But what if it comes back after the first week and it's still there, the same size, but it didn't, it didn't spread. So this Pasuk is talking about a case where after week one, it stayed the same. And after week two, then it started to spread. It's unbelievable. It comes to teach you here, with this type of spreading. It stood the first week and spread the second week. What do you do with it? In that case, Yachol Yetetzenu, you think you have to demolish, demolish the whole house? Kemo Shesamachlo, just like it says, Benatatetabayit. Over here it says you have to demolish the whole house. No, Tamudomar, Beshaba Kohen, Ubaha Kohen. It says, and the Kohen will return and the Kohen will come. What do we learn from this? The Lord Biyamishiva, Mashiva, Holet Vekotse, just like after the first week. When it spreads, he only takes the stones and he just has to take some plaster off. Betah, so too, after the first week, uh, so too, after the second week as well, he does the same thing. Now let's go slow. So then we learned the big Hadush over here. There's three scenarios that we're talking about. I, I hate to test our members on this technical stuff, but it is Torah. We have to see if we're getting 
any uh, comprehension on this. So I'm going to ask you three questions. You tell me the rule. There is sanaat on the wall. The Kohen comes after week one, and after week one, he sees that it spreads. Just answer multiple choice. Is it Tameh or Tahor? Tameh. Tameh is the right answer. Again, it was after this, it was on the wall. He comes a week later and it spread. Whenever you hear the word spreading, you know that's a buzzword for Tum'ah. Okay, now I ask you another question. Let's say he comes after a week and he said it was Tameh. And he took the stones off, and he took the plaster off, and now all of a sudden it comes back. It didn't spread, it just came back. What's the law? Takes down the house. Very good. That's it. That she's fiducious over here. That when it comes back, finish. You don't have to wait till it spreads. You gotta take, take the stones off. The whole house down. That's already. That's called it came back. Now let's discuss the case that she tells us. Came the first week, and what? After the first week, it didn't spread. Oh, so now the Hadush is, you have to wait another week. And if in the second week it spread, which is the Pasuk that's talking about now when it mentions Ufasa, then the Torah says you do on the second week what you would have done normally on the first week. And what is that? Okay. Just take the stones and take the plaster off. Exactly. And now the question is, what about if it doesn't spread at all? Let's say after the first week, it's the same. So the grand quarantines the house for a second week. And when he comes after the second week, it's still the same size. Now what do you do? Now we didn't learn that case yet. Now you have two weeks where it stayed the same size. Continue Rashi. How do you know that if it stays the same size, unchanged for two weeks, you take the stones and you scrape around the edges and you have to replaster. And you have to give it another week to see if it returns. Right, which is which is which 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 exactly I'll explain what that means. If we're talking about where it spread the first week, we know that halakha already If it's spread after the second week, we just learned it from this pasuk. What is this pasuk? Which means it remained the same. It did not change. And the Hadush over there is that even if it remained unchanged, after the second week, you have to take down the stones. You think if it doesn't change, you just walk away and declare the house uh, without declaring it impure, no. The only time the queen can render the house stone if it disappears, but as long as it stays there, even if it didn't spread after two weeks, the the law is it is tamed. 
Ma in the Onan, just like in the earlier verse, we said you have to take the stones and you have to plaster, scrape the plaster off. So too, the same thing even after the second week, if it remained the same, one has to uh, do the same concept. The En Chosen Sadiq Pesayon. The Sin of Rotkach. And it, it continues wherever, and it continues wherever, week after week. Oh, oh, so very good question. Very good. How long does this go until, until Mashiach comes? It's so, not out of the woods. <laughs> it's not out of the woods. So if you look at the end of this Sashi, so that she at the end says like this. Um, as she says, She'en b'negaim yotem b'shlosha shavuot. Oh, three weeks. It's not more than three weeks, which means by three weeks already, it's already, it's already decided. That, 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 that is the deadline. So therefore, <laughs> if it, let's say he went for the first week and then he went for the second week, but by the second week already, it's going to be Tamer. Uh, but he says over here in the Shi, Be'omed Barishon, Shenoten lo Shamua Sheni Leskeno, at the end of the second week, of course, let's say it's spread after the second week. So then he has to take down the stones like we learned and all that. And then he waits another week to see if it returns. If it returns, so then he has to demolish the whole house. If it doesn't return, then he just finishes his process by bringing the birds, whatever he has to do. So basically, it's a three-week process. Maximum, I'll explain to you what that means. The first week, the queen comes and checks it. He's, okay, let me quarantine it off for a week. Let's say he comes after the, 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 the first week, not second week. Oh, actually, he comes after the first week and didn't spread. Fine, so he waits another week. He comes another week, and now it spreads. So now the law is he has to uh, take down the uh, take down the uh, the bricks and all that stuff, and now he lets them wait an additional week just to make sure it doesn't come back. If it doesn't come back after that in that third week, that's it. He's out of the woods. So again, there's one week. The first time he's called to the house, he looks at the tzadat. Is okay. Let's put it. Let's we, we, have to, we have to inspect. He quarantines the house. On the seventh day, he comes back. If it remains, if it disappears, then goodbye. And he's over, no problem. If it stays the same size, so he said, okay, I'll see you in a week. He comes in the second week, sure enough, it's spread. Oh, now it's spread. Now you got to take the stones out and you have to take the, uh, the plaster off. And now what happens? He waits another week just to make sure it doesn't come back. Now, after the third week, if it doesn't come back, he's clean. But if in the third week it comes back, even if it doesn't spread, even if it comes back in any which way possible, that's called Sarat Mam'eret, and they have to destroy the entire Not All house. over again. Yeah. That's right. All right. Anyway, I'm glad you told me to go back to that. She wasn't an easy one, but it's better than with the topic that we were so talking So anyway, I want you to know that every night was a challenge for me this week. Yes. We were able to make it. I was feeling about three nights, and the other night I was away. Tonight I came home late, but Baruch Hashem, Hashem knows that we're making extra effort, not only me, but those that are listening, for the Rifu Ashen and Abu Dhanim, especially for Hayas Sarabat Simha. Amen.